God gives us wonderful role models in life now and then. These saints and mentors are examples to us of how to run the good race, how to live life to the full. And I know that that this particular community of Chicago has, at least in recent days, brought to mind someone who played that kind of an exemplary role. There was a sweetness about Walter Payton that will sorely be missed, isn't there? Oh, it's not just the fact that he could dance down the football field with such stunning grace and power. It wasn't just the, the sugary way he could respond to the questions of the, of the commentators and the sports writer or the way that his laughter flowed like syrup. No, there was something about the very sweetness of this man's character that we won't soon forget. At the memorial service held at Soldier Field for him, NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue put it in these words. For fans all across America, Walter Payton was in many ways what we just don't expect a superstar to be. He was open, accessible, easy, down to earth. He ultimately was what he appeared to be, what he claimed to be. Whether fired up for some significant game or or fearful in the face of some terrible illness, there were no facades with him. You saw what he was. And what he promised to do was what he almost always did, and then some, oftentimes. What he demanded of others was what he tirelessly worked out for and delivered himself time and time again. Old Peyton was not a flawless figure, at least no more so than you or me, but there was an unusual consistency about him. A consistency between his press clippings and his personal performance that we don't find so often these days. In short, we met in him the sweet congruence between heroic reputation on the one hand and a wholesome reality on the other. Oh, that we did more often. We live in an era where this kind of integrity is not only increasingly unusual, but also barely even expected anymore, at least from public figures. We've seen so many politicians, and I might add preachers, so many business people and celebrities successfully cultivate one particular reputation and profit from that image while living so often a very different reality that we've become increasingly jaded in our view about integrity. As comedian Lily Tomlin remarks, I've always considered myself a cynical person, but these days it's hard to keep up. With every report, it seems. There's some new respected figure splashed across the pages of our newspapers or the evening news magazines, 
who we discover has been involved in kickback schemes or insider trading or cheating on their spouse or violating some important ethical code. It happens so often that our tendency to be shocked and surprised anymore grows numb, begins to die. And in time, we may not only no longer expect integrity from others, we may actually become somewhat dead to the importance of it in our own life, too. That's what had begun to happen at Sardis long ago. When Jesus spoke to that group of Christians there at the end of the first century A.D. He was speaking to a group of people who had all but lost a sense of the crucial connection between external reputation and inward reality. Oh, on the surface of things, the Christians at Sardis looked about as healthy as you could get. I mean, they were in the eyes of many there the perfect models, the the contenders for the spiritual Super Bowl of life. In fact, Jesus makes a point of saying, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. And from these words, we have to assume that believers in other parts of Asia Minor really looked up to these folks at Sardis. That maybe... It was a model, lively church. Maybe it was one of those unusually large congregations by first century standards. Perhaps they were known for their majestic worship service or for their excellent teaching or for their fine pastoral care ministries, or their special programs, or their mission projects. They may have been blessed with just an unusual pool of money. Sardis was, and after all, a a wealthy, cosmopolitan kind of place. They might have just had a a larger-than-normal number of particularly bright people as volunteers in the church's life. They they, they may have been able to go further with the work of God's kingdom in, in all kinds of visible ways. They obviously had every external indicator of a vigorous spiritual life. But Jesus, as we've so often heard him tell us in the book of Revelation, is the one who really sees, who deeply knows the state of the soul of his church. In the book of 1 Samuel, we're told that the Lord God does not look at the things man looks at. Human beings look at the outward appearance, the Scripture says, but the Lord, He looks at the heart. And the reference that Jesus makes a little further down in the text in verse 4 about those who have not soiled their clothes suggests that sin in spite of appearances, had stained the church there. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus tells us that 
the whole community of Sardis, for that matter, was known for its lax moral standards. I'm not sure it was the Las Vegas of its day, but it it certainly was a free and easy, fast-moving city. And apparently that that easygoingness about moral standards had begun to infiltrate the church as well. And so it was filled with what we today might call nominal Christians. People who belong to Christ in name, surely, but not in heart. This concern for integrity between the name and the heart, between outward appearance and inward reality, is a continual theme of the Scriptures. For the simple reason that God's nature is integrity. How does God introduce Himself for the first time? I am who I am. What you see is who I am. What I do is a reflection of of what I am. Thought and truth, form and power, appearance and reality, totally connected. And so King David, who knew this God, said, I know, my God, that you test the heart and that you are pleased with integrity. Jesus was hardest on those who ignored that reality, particularly within the religious community. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, he said. You are like whitewashed tombs, whitened sepulchers. You look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside are full of dead men's bones, he says, and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, says Jesus, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The opposite of integrity is not a slightly underdeveloped Christian life. The opposite of integrity is hypocrisy. Hupokrites, that Greek word, literally means to act. A hupokrites was one who plays a part convincingly, but whose true identity is very different from what the audience sees. And in the eyes of God, the Sardisians were simply putting on an act. The members of the church thought of themselves, presented themselves as spiritually alive. But Jesus said, I see that you are dead. If we're not careful, that's what he could see about us too sometimes. I think of the prosperous Wall Street broker who met and fell in love with a A marvelous young woman, a person of gentility and dignity, 
And he frequently was seen escorting her around town, decided he wanted to marry her, but being a cautious man, decided that before proposing marriage to her, he should have a private investigative agency just do a background check on her, just to make sure that she was what she seemed. After all, he was a man of good reputation, he was amassing a fortune, and he needed to protect against any kind of marital misadventure, if you get my drift. So the young man requested the agency be scrupulously careful not to reveal his identity to the investigator making the report on the actress, and in due time, the investigator's report came back. It was mostly good news. It said that the woman had an unblemished past. She appeared to have a spotless lifestyle. Her friends and associates were of the very best kind. The report concluded, and I, re and I quote, the only shadow is that she is often seen around town in the company of a young broker of dubious practices and principles. <laughs> Ooh. Do you ever wonder what the report might be on you and me? I do sometimes. I shudder how many times I've thought of myself as a spiritual all-star. When the one who really holds the stars sees the reality Intellectually and conversationally, of course, we're all clear on our values, aren't we? We know what we believe in. We're definitely opposed to evil. We're against stealing and gambling. We're against adultery and lying. We're definitely opposed to all those people out there that are doing those sorts of awful things. But privately, we may cheat on our taxes and lust after many and gamble away the time on unprofitable ventures and bend the truth every day. We may earnestly seek to cultivate a reputation, think of ourselves as a loving person while privately gossiping and criticizing the very people whom God does love. We may portray ourselves as open-minded, thoughtful people while admitting very little fresh light into our souls. We may call our children and others to, to handle conflicts and emotions one way and then handle them very differently our, ourselves. We may be judging others for the very sins that if we could see as Jesus sees, we'd recognize we're committing ourselves. What Jesus said to the church at Sardis may or may not be true of you. It is of me. Maybe you too. 
But what he said to them was, and I quote, I have not found you complete in the sight of my God. The word translated complete is the Greek word pleru, which suggests the idea of filling up, as in filling up a cup to the top, or completing a masterpiece. In other words, Jesus is patently not saying here, you've completely blown it. You're out of the game. You're off the team. I'm done with you. What Christ is saying instead is just the opposite. He's saying, now's the time to get into the game. I've got great plans for you. I'm not done with you yet. I want to give you some coaching so that we might finish this work that we've begun in you, my father and I. And so he goes on to give to the Christians at Sardis, and I dare say anybody who has the ears to hear some very specific coaching instructions. And the first instruction is this, wake up. Wake up. The Bible has this curious way of equating spiritual death, or even physical death for that matter, with sleep. Which suggests that no one's beyond hope, doesn't it? In God's grace. And again and again, we're told that God is is trying to ring the alarm bell over those who slumber. He rings it now in this life. One day he'll ring the big gong at the resurrection of the dead. But all along the course of our lives, again and again, is God is trying to ring some alarm of Scripture or of circumstance or some other agent of His Spirit to wake us up. And at some level, at least a good part of the time, we know He's trying to wake us. We hear the alarm. But far too often we make this semi-conscious but deliberate decision not to be awoken. I don't want to hear that part of Scripture. That must be for somebody else. That must just be the preacher's opinion. Maybe that's just a different version of the Bible. We don't want to hear what God is saying, and so we make this decision to to close our eyes, and we, in a sense, just reach out and hit the spiritual snooze button and roll over. Resolve to wake up later. Please don't do that today. God is ringing the alarm bell for all of us this morning to aspire towards greater integrity in our own lives. Secondly, Jesus says, strengthen what remains before it dies. Remember what you have received and heard. Do you remember it? Are you in touch with what still remains that needs strengthening? 
I believe that deep within the locker of our souls, there remains the vestige of a vital vision God has for us. It was a vision which in some measure, I bet most people sitting here at some point in their life had in vivid detail in their mind's eye. It was a vision of not just being an ordinary player, not just a bench sitter in this world, of being one of the great striving servants for Christ, of walking intimately with him, of working out spiritually in a sense, of growing strong, of being capable, efficacious, impactful in the world. We wanted our marriages to be the great marriages. We wanted our our children to to have character and to know Christ. We wanted to impact our workplaces for the good. We wanted to be agents of God's kingdom's cause, not just a career, not just a culture. We wanted to be players in the richest and most wonderful sense, in the spiritual sense of servants of the king. That vision remains somewhere. And we've got to reclaim it. And we come to worship week in and week out to do that, to have that that remainder strengthened again. And if we hear that alarm and we wake up and we want to strengthen what remains, then we must thirdly, finally, as Jesus says, repent and obey. We must consciously turn away from the bed, from the bad habit, attitude, tendency, and take a step out towards the new life, obeying his call. That's very hard to do. I know that. I experienced that. That's one of the reasons why I have this prayer that I say, and I commend to you. Um, It goes like this. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for being so close to me so far this day. And by your grace, I haven't been impatient. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been grumpy or judgmental or envious of anyone. But Lord, I'm going to be getting out of bed in just a moment. And then I'm going to really need your help. And the wonder is, he gives it. The one who holds the seven spirits, has the power of the Spirit of God to transform, to bring forth new fruit, to raise up new life, to lift up on wings as eagles those who have run and grown weary. And if you will open your heart your mind, your soul, your strength this day to the inpouring of that spirit. He will grow up in you the kind of integrity, just a bit more, that is worthy of his life.
of his life. Please pray with me. All loving and all powerful God, we think of the simple worldly examples that you've provided us. We think of, uh, of what you've given us in the form of a man like Walter Payton. We imagine how often he responded to a wake-up call and rose to do what he'd been gifted to do, even when tired and sore and ill. We think of the immense passion that he put into strengthening what he had received as a gift and been taught. We recall the changes he was willing to make, the lengths he was willing to go in obedience to his calling. But we also know that Walter Payton's integrity was but a tiny reflection of that infinitely more glorious substance we meet in the person of the one whom Peyton finally called my Lord and Savior. We thank you above all else for Christ's amazing witness, Lord, for the call he's given us to join his cause on the fields to which we'll go this week. We simply ask now for the power of his Holy Spirit, for the power that still raises people to new life, that still enables those who put their trust in you, though they fall, to run again and not grow weary. Oh, fill us more and more, we pray, with all the grace and wisdom, with all the strength and sweetness we need to honor you fully and completely with the service of our lives. May both the reality and the reputation of our existence bring glory to you in days ahead. Through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.